Chapter Ten, Section Three, of *The Promise of American Life* by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Ten, Section Three, Democracy and Peace. A genuinely national foreign policy for the American democracy is not exhausted by the Monroe Doctrine. The United States already has certain colonial interests and these interests may hereafter be extended. I do not propose at the present stage of this discussion to raise the question as to the legitimacy in principle of a colonial policy on the part of a democratic nation. The validity of colonial expansion even for a democracy is a manifest deduction from the foregoing political principles, always assuming that the people whose independence is thereby diminished are incapable of efficient national organization. On the other hand, a democratic nation cannot righteously ignore an unusually high standard of obligation for the welfare of its colonial population. It would be distinctly recreant to its duty, in case it failed to provide for the economic prosperity of such a population and for their educational discipline and social improvement. It by no means follows, however, that because there is no rigid objection on democratic principles to colonial expansion, there may not be the strongest practical objection on the score of national interest to the acquisition of a particular territory. A remote colony is, under existing international conditions, even more of a responsibility than it is a source of national power and efficiency. And it is always a grave question how far the assumption of any particular responsibility is worthwhile. Without entering into any specific discussion, there can, I think, be little doubt that the United States was justified in assuming its existing responsibilities in respect to Cuba and its much more abundant responsibilities in respect to Puerto Rico. Neither can it be fairly claimed that hitherto the United States has not dealt disinterestedly and in good faith with the people of these islands. On the other hand, our acquisition of the Philippines raises a series of much more doubtful questions. These islands have been so far merely an expensive obligation from which little benefit has resulted to this country and a comparatively moderate benefit to the filipinos they have already cost an amount of money far beyond any chance of compensation and an amount of american and filipino blood the shedding of which constitutes a grave responsibility their future defense against possible attack presents a military and naval problem of the utmost difficulty in fact they cannot be defended from japan except by the maintenance of a fleet in pacific waters at least as large as the japanese fleet and it does not look probable that the united states will be able to afford for another generation any such concentration of naval strength in the pacific but even though from the military point of view the philippines may constitute a source of weakness and danger their possession will have the political advantage of keeping the american people alive to their interests in the grave problems which will be raised in the far east by the future development of china and japan the future of china raises questions of american foreign policy second only in importance to the establishment of a stable american international organization and in relation to these questions also the interests of the united states and canada tend both to coincide and to diverge possibly from those of great britain just what form the Chinese question will assume, after the industrial and the political awakening of China, has resulted in a more effective military organization, and in greater powers both of production and consumption, cannot be predicted with any certainty. But at present, 
it looks as if the maintenance of the traditional american policy with respect to china viz the territorial integrity and the free commercial development of that country might require quite as considerable a concentration of naval strength in the pacific as it required by the defense of the philippines it is easy enough to enunciate such a policy just as it is easy to proclaim a monroe doctrine which no european power has any sufficient immediate interest to dispute but it is wholly improbable that china can be protected in its territorial integrity and its political independence without a great deal of diplomacy and more or less fighting during the life of the coming generation there will be brought home clearly to the american people how much it will cost to assert its own essential interests in china and the peculiar value of the philippines as an american colony will consist largely in the fact that they will help american public opinion to realize more quickly than it otherwise would the complications and responsibilities created by chinese political development and by japanese ambition the existence and the resolute and intelligent facing of such responsibilities are an inevitable and a wholesome aspect of national discipline and experience the american people have too easily evaded them in the past but in the future they cannot be evaded and it is better so the irresponsible attitude of americans in respect to their national domestic problems may in part be traced to freedom from equally grave international responsibilities in truth the work of internal reconstruction and amelioration so far from being opposed to that of the vigorous assertion of a valid foreign policy is really correlative and supplementary thereto and it is entirely possible that hereafter the united states will be forced into the adoption of a really national domestic policy because of the dangers and duties incurred through her relations with foreign countries the increasingly strenuous nature of international competition and the constantly higher standards of international economic technical and political efficiency prescribe a constantly improving domestic political and economic organization the geographical isolation which affords the united states its military security against foreign attack should not blind americans to the merely comparative nature of their isolation the growth of modern sea power and the vast sweep of modern national political interests have at once diminished their security and multiplied the possible sources of contact between american and european interests no matter how peaceably the united states is inclined and no matter how advantageously it is situated the american nation is none the less constantly threatened by political warfare and constantly engaged in industrial warfare the american people can no more afford than can a european people to neglect any necessary kind or source of efficiency sooner than ever before in the history of the world do a nation's sins and deficiencies find it out under modern conditions a country which takes its responsibilities lightly and will not submit to the discipline necessary to political efficiency does not gradually decline as spain did in the seventeenth century it usually goes down with a crash as france did in eighteen seventy or as russia has just done the effect of diminishing economic efficiency is not as suddenly and dramatically exhibited but it is no less inevitable and no less severe and the service which the very intensity of modern international competition renders to a living nation arises precisely from the searching character of the tests to which it subjects the several national organizations austria-hungary has been forced to assume a secondary position in europe because the want of national cohesion and vitality deprived her political advance of all momentum.
Russia has suddenly discovered that a corrupt bureaucracy is incapable of a national organization as efficient as modern military and political competition requires. It was desirable in the interest of the Austrians, the Hungarians, and the Russians that these weaknesses should be exposed, and if the Christian states of the West ever become so organized that their weaknesses are concealed until their consequences become irremediable, Western civilization itself will be on the road to decline. The Atlantic Ocean will, in the long run, fail to offer the United States any security from the application of the same searching standards. Its democratic institutions must be justified, not merely by the prosperity which they bestow upon their own citizens, but by its ability to meet the standards of efficiency imposed by other nations. Its standing as a nation is determined precisely by its ability to conquer, and to hold a dignified and important place in the society of nations. The inference inevitably is that the isolation which has meant so much to the United States, and still means so much, cannot persist in its present form. Its geographical position will always have a profound influence on the strategic situation of the United States in respect to the European powers. It should always emancipate the United States from merely European complications. But while the American nation should never seek a positive place in an exclusively European system, Europe, the United States, Japan, and China must all eventually take their respective places in a world system. While such a system is still so remote, that it merely shows dimly through the obscurity of the future. Its manifest desirability brings with it certain definite but contingent obligations, in addition to the general obligation of comprehensive and thoroughgoing national efficiency. It brings with it the obligation of interfering under certain possible circumstances, in what may at first appear to be a purely European complication, and this specific obligation would be the result of the general obligation of a democratic nation to make its foreign policy serve the cause of international peace. Hitherto, the American preference and desire for peace has constituted the chief justification for its isolation. At some future time the same purpose, just in so far as it is sincere and rational, may demand intervention. The American responsibility in this respect is similar to that of any peace-preferring European power. If it wants peace, it must be spiritually and physically prepared to fight for it. Peace will prevail in international relations, just as order prevails within a nation, because of the righteous use of superior force, because the power which makes for pacific organization is stronger than the power which makes for a warlike organization. It looks as if, at some future time, the power of the United States might well be sufficient, when thrown into the balance, to tip the scales in favor of a comparatively pacific settlement of international complications. Under such conditions, a policy of neutrality would be a policy of irresponsibility and unwisdom. The notion of American intervention in a European conflict, carrying with it either the chance or the necessity of war, would at present be received with pious horror by the great majority of Americans. Non-interference in European affairs is conceived, not as a policy dependent upon certain conditions, but as absolute law, derived from the sacred writings. If the issue should be raised in the near future, the American people would be certain to shirk it, and they would, perhaps, have some reason for a failure to understand their obligation, because the course of European political development has not yet been such as to raise the question in a decisive form. All one can say as to the existing situation 
is that there are certain powers which may have very much more to lose than they have to gain by war. These powers are no longer small states like Belgium, Switzerland, and Holland, but populous and powerful states like Great Britain, Italy, and France. It may be one or it may be many generations before the issue of a peaceful or a warlike organization is decisively raised. When, if ever, it is decisively raised, the system of public law, under which any organization would have to take place, may not be one which the United States could accept. But the point is that, whenever and however it is raised, the American national leaders should confront it with a sound, well-informed, and positive conception of the American national interest, rather than a negative and ignorant conception. And there is at least a fair chance that such will be the case. The experience of the American people in foreign affairs is only beginning, and during the next few generations the growth of their traffic with Asia, and with Europe, will afford them every reason and every opportunity to ponder seriously the great international problem of peace in its relation to the American national democratic interest. The idea which is most likely to lead them astray is the idea which vitiates the Monroe Doctrine in its popular form, the idea of some essential incompatibility between Europeanism and Americanism. That idea has given a sort of religious sanctity to the national tradition of isolation, and it will survive its own utility because it flatters American democratic vanity. But if such an idea should prevent the American nation from contributing its influence to the establishment of a peaceful system in Europe, America, and Asia, such a refusal would be a decisive stop towards American democratic degeneracy. It would either mean that the American nation preferred its apparently safe and easy isolation to the dangers and complications which would inevitably attend the final establishment of a just system of public law, or else it would mean that the American people believed more in Americanism than they did in democracy. A decent guarantee of international peace would be precisely the political condition which would enable the European nations to release the springs of democracy, and the Americanism which was indifferent or suspicious of the spread of democracy in Europe would incur and deserve the enmity of the European peoples. Such an attitude would constitute a species of continental provincialism and chauvinism. Hence there is no shibboleth that patriotic Americans should fight more tenaciously and more fiercely than of America for the Americans and Europe for the Europeans. To make Pan-Americanism merely a matter of geography is to deprive it of all serious meaning. Pan-Slavism or Pan-Germanism, based upon a racial bond, would be a far more significant political idea. The only possible foundation of Pan-Americanism is an ideal democratic purpose, which, when translated into terms of international relations, demands, in the first place, the establishment of a pacific system of public law in the two Americas, and, in the second place, an alliance with the pacific European powers, just in so far as a similar system has become in that continent one of the possibilities of practical politics. End of chapter 10